What football team do you support, Juliet? Well, my son is an avid. There's no adjective to describe this. Are you going to say Arsenal? Passion, actually, no. Oh, Man U. We should be. <laughs> we should be um, Arsenal because it's our nearest. Mm, that's what I was um, thinking. I know. No, he supports Man U for the complex reason that at two years old he liked the colour red. <laughs> and um, once you've chosen your team, age two, you have to stick with it. Well, I mean, Arsenal is also red. I hate to break it to, to him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte Harrison, and it is fantastic to be joined by the actor and campaigner Juliet Stevenson. Juliet, thank you so much for uh, joining us for Off Book. Pleasure. These podcasts normally start by me asking uh, my guests how the arts played a role in their in their childhood, in their in their upbringing, and whether or not theatre and performance was something that played heavily in you growing up? Yeah, well, not so much with me because um, my dad was in the army. So that meant that we moved on around the world every two, two and a half years. Um, different postings in Germany, Australia, Malta, different places. And in those places, there is no theatre. Um, there wasn't. So theatre wasn't part of my childhood really at all. And nor did we have a telly. Um, and, we, you know, there's, you get one movie a year maybe at these army bases or maybe two. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say it did. And then when I was about 11, they came back to England and um, we settled for a bit. And then we started going to the local rep and seeing sort of whatever it was producing there, really. And I guess that's when I started watching but by then, I had long since sort of got the bug, not by watching theatre, which I didn't, but from sort of internally, some strange internal impulse, um, more from reading poetry out loud and stuff like that than from seeing shows. Uh, yeah, it was a poem that got me started, a poem I saw when I was about nine or ten and picked up and just was sort of, it was like one of those, you know, uh, extraordinary um, moments when a light bulb explodes somewhere in your being and and you just think I have to read this poem out loud to a group of people I have to be the vessel through which this passes you know and um it was a, it was an Auden poem love poem from one man to another which I couldn't possibly have understood but I just <laughs> I had this thing about its rhythms it's just had the most exquisite rhythm and I just wanted to to have that language moving through me, as it were. And I think that's always quite a useful story to go back to because you can lose the plot, you know, when you're older and you've been working for a long time. And I sometimes think, just go back to that memory that you're a vessel, language and experience moves through you like a conduit and you communicate it to a bunch of other people. That's it. You know, that's all that it is and that is a lot, but it's not some of the other stuff that we can get you know, diverted into. Um, I was hoping you were going to say it was a smutty limerick. I thought that, that would no, be amazing. Sorry. No, I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure there were smutty limericks. My dad was quite capable of, yeah. He, my dad used to walk around the house, um, you know, mouthing off great chunks of, of Greek and stuff like that. He, he and, 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 and doggerel. He loved doggerel. Not so much smutty. Well, his version of smutty would be very sweet and innocent, really. But, um, yeah, no, I think I think that both my parents, you know, they read a lot and and um, but I mean, my schooling was pretty non-existent until the age of about nine or ten. And then I came over to boarding school like lots of army kids. And then and then dra drama, there was a brilliant drama teacher at my school. So that's when it really all sort of started to um, explode. But yeah, no, I was brought up on Windsor Rep, you know, productions that were probably if I saw them now, they might not be the greatest. <laughs> but I, I um 
I really love them. And, and, and the rep theatre there was run by a family. It was like husband and wife and two daughters, I think. And so you'd go, you know, like once every two months or something, and you'd see the same people again and again playing different parts, probably quite recognisably, <laughs> not necessarily transforming. But um, it was when I, my first encounter really was therefore of the whole idea of a repertory company and an ensemble that goes on working together and which, you know, I go back to a lot as a form that I, uh, that I love. You know. And do you think that childhood of, of sort of moving around with your father, sort of not perhaps having a base or an, an anchor, has helped you as an actor, as a performer, because you're sort of, you're not, you're finding a root in a character, which yeah. from sort of from, from a stop start position, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it it's really interesting. I mean, I often, th- I'm not that introspective, so I don't look and analyse my past that much. And I don't go to therapy and all that stuff. I have wondered what the connection was. And, and. I suppose the best that I can come up with, which I think is true, is that when you're moving around all the time, so you move every, you know, two and a half years, there's no email, there's no mobiles, there are no, you know, there's no form of retaining the friendships you've just lost. So you were in Germany, you made some friends, then you left them, you went to Australia. You, you, those friendships are gone. You know, you start again, you make more friends. But there was always a period when you first arrived, perhaps for several months, when you didn't really have any friends and you know you're new you're often new in a new place and you have to learn what's the code here what are all those games that we have to play to fit in here and you either I remember either you know either fit in or you don't so in other words there's lots of time alone and there's quite a lot of time feeling that you're on the edge that you're not really um I had two brothers but they they're older than me and they went to to boarding school at eight so quite often I was on my own and I think that I don't remember being lonely. I mean, I had a wonderful family, but I think lots of time solitary certainly has something to do with it because I remember spending a lot of time making up stories in my head, inhabiting stories. I'd go for a walk with my mum in the woods or something and I'd be running a camera along beside me. You know, um, I read read quite a lot. Um, I think when you're thrown back on your own resources, you do live lots of lives inside your head. Maybe you people your world a bit. And that's the only real connection I can find. Um, the only other thing that makes sense is that I don't think people, because they have itinerant childhoods, therefore choose an itinerant profession. I'm sure it doesn't work that way. But I'm, I really am well suited to an itinerant profession. I'm very happy to walk into a completely new situation, make camp there, quickly make a home in my dressing room, you know, 20 minutes and I've got stuff on the walls and I've got, you know, Mm. and I love that, that you make this your home. Like the young Vic here, you know, walk in, make it my home, passionately love it, make the community. And then very, very sadly, say goodbye and move on. But I'm, it's, it's, I'm used to it. You I know, can't imagine you it. with a with a desk job, to be honest. I don't see that as you. <laughs> no, I would be very, very bad. I was once asked to be on a board. Actually, it was the board of the young Vic. I was, I was, I was really bad. Even sitting at a table, no desks and tables. You were like, right. oh my god, this is so boring. Yeah, I was, I was really, really disastrous. I was politely removed pretty quickly. Um, no, I'm not good at tables and desks. Um, no. No, I I really do love being active too. I'm I'm quite a doer, you know. Mm. I like, phys- I, I I like physical work. Mm. I love walking. I love being outdoors. I like I'm quite energetic, and I would go nuts um, sitting down all day. But, but what about another creative profession then? What about being a writer or a director? Has this ever been something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, no, I would really really love to direct. And um, I mean, I've done tiny bits and pieces, but I've been a real coward about it. Um, for a long time, I was a coward because I have been asked. Um, 
I was a coward when the kids were young because I thought, listen, you know, I'm trying to be an actress and a mother. And there were four kids between us in the house. And I, I thought, I, I daren't direct because as an actress, I get pretty colonised in my head with the person that I'm playing or the show that you're preparing or the film or whatever. If I was directing something and had the responsibility for the entire product and everybody I was using and employing, I wouldn't have enough room left for the kids. I just, it would be colonizing. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't, you know, I can't do that. I, I, I'm at my limits of what I can manage in terms of what acting, how much it occupies of me. So that was my sort of excuse for not doing it. Now, you know, my youngest is 16. I probably could now. Um, and I would love to, um, but I'd have to take a big stride into my confidence. And I think probably, yeah, I think I probably um, am, am ready for that. Writing, I really do love and hate, of course, because I think every, you know everybody loves and hates writing if they're... I have been asked to do odd bits and pieces. I had to write some short stories for the BBC and... Um, and I've written quite a lot about work in the past, so a couple of books in which I contributed stuff about working on Shakespeare's heroines, which I felt very passionate about. And I really love it. And, and I, I think I could do it, but I'm, um, again, the discipline would be really challenging. I th- I'm pretty rubbish at that. I find that really interesting what you said about um, being a director taking over everything in your life. So what about when you're playing a role, a, a role so... Um, heavy as Winnie in Happy Days, for mm. instance. When when you were Winnie in Happy Days at the Young Vic twice, did you find that when you were going to the shops, when you were at home, when you were meeting friends, you were Winnie or were you Juliet? Oh, I don't think I'm entirely Winnie. I mean, that would be kind of really irritating for everybody. <laughs> Constantly in character. But I definitely, they are in the bloodstream all the time. And, and the beauty, partly, of going home and doing something really mundane like the laundry or cooking a meal or clearing it up or picking toys off the floor or wiping dogs, you know, bums <laughs> or whatever, is that all the time you can be doing that stuff and characters just go on cooking in your head. It's really like preparing a meal and then you put it on the back burner to simmer for 45 minutes. It's a bit like that and they're simmering away all the time. And ideas will just come to you in the middle of doing the laundry or on a walk um, uh, in the middle of some quite mundane task, things come into my head. Somehow, the more mundane the task, the more ideas flow in, or you wake up in the morning and they're there. So I think I am colonised. But if it's a character you're playing, you can manage home life with that. I mean, the kids now, they're a bit older, are very funny about it. You know, like, oh, God, what, what are you playing next month? Please, can we have a comedy? Because, <laughs> you know, or can you stop? When are you going to stop talking in an Irish accent? Mom, it, it's been going on for three months now, and we're really fed up with it. You know, because I, I, they do have to, to some extent, put up with certain, you know, changes of... Minor changes of personality. But um, but then when you are cleaning a dog's bum and that idea comes to you, what do you do with that idea? Do you oh, they immediately just, write it down or record it? Or? I might write it down. Um, I sometimes keep notes on my phone now. Or I might write it down in endless notebooks stuffed into my handbag. But when you get to a certain point, you don't have to write it down. You can just slip it in and it sort of just gets absorbed. And then when you go out on stage that night, it's there. I mean, you might you might pass somebody in the street and you think there's a look in that woman's eye that I think is right for that moment when she's told she's never going to get any better. Or, you know, or do you know what I mean? Mm. And you, you just, you're like magpies. You just pick, steal, grab, use, rehash, recycle, um, absorb all the time. That's why I love the tube. I love traveling on the underground because you just sit there and there's bound to be bits of certain 
people <laughs> that you think, oh, yeah, look at the way she turns that page. I mean, Wings started off with me sitting on stage for about 10 or 15 minutes reading a book. So for a long time, I just sat and watched people reading books on the tube. It sounds like you never switched off, really. I think the glory of doing a role that really absorbs you is that you don't really switch off. But I I think that suits me, really. I really love it. You know, it's sort of everything is interesting. There's nothing that's boring because everything's coming in through a filter of what is possibly usable and possibly not. You know, people say, why do you like the tube? How can you like the Northern Line? And I say, because it's a fridge full of, you know, morsels that you can... It's definitely not a fridge. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? No, an it's oven. Not, it's an oven. But I mean, you know, it's like you open the door and there's these racks and racks and racks of possible stuff you can consume. You know, I feel bad talking about passengers that way, but you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. We're great, we're great recycling machines. That's really all we are. Let's discuss those two roles most recently at the Young Vic then um, in Wings and Happy Days. Um, both those roles, you played a woman who appears to be trapped, you know, obviously in Happy Days uh, with, with Samuel Beckett's work. It's a woman literally trapped uh, up to her shoulders and then up to her waist and then neck in, in sand or, or, or gravel or whatever it is. And in, and in Wings, a character recovering uh, from a stroke. Mm. Were you aware of sort of the similarities between those two women when you came back to the Young Vic for, for Wings? And is there something that attracts you to that kind of character then? It's funny, isn't it? Because Natalie and I, Natalie Abrahami, a wonderful director of both those shows, um, and I talked about that, but it wasn't a reason why we chose Wings. I mean, she asked me to do Happy Days, and, um, you know, obviously that is entirely, literally a woman physically trapped, as you say, up to her waist and then up to her neck, and it's obviously a metaphor. Um, But when she sent me Wings, or David Lan here sent us Wings, I didn't recognize the role in that way um i suppose when you read it on a page her mind is so free and her language is so sort of crazy it's peppered with the aphasic aphasia you know this sort of post-stroke strange distorted language um this odd vocabulary that that stroke induces in her for a while and then her fantasies about flying that she did in in, in her youth when she was an aviator and a, a wing walker so On the page, it doesn't so much oddly strike you as a play about a woman who is trapped. Then, when we started rehearsal, I realised that's why the harness idea, I did the whole show in a harness, you know, um, swinging in the air, and which was both extremely restricting and extremely liberating. And that's when, when I suddenly thought, God, you know, she is really stuck. And then, of course, doing lots of stroke research before we began rehearsal in stroke units of hospitals and meeting patients with speech therapists um, in their homes and clinics and so on, um, I realised how indescribably trapped people are. And then, you know, we made the connection. And and, and so the, the answer is no, we didn't set out to find a second play about a very trapped woman who uses her mind to escape from her entrapment, which is true of both those characters. We didn't, but then that's how they ended up. Um, but I think, you know, Many, 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 many women are trapped. Um, they're trapped in jobs that they they don't like, but they can't uh, get, you know, they can't get promoted because of glass ceilings, or they are trapped in marriages or relationships that they're, they're not happy in, but they can't financially leave or move, or they can't emotionally leave or move, or they've got kids they have to stay for. Um, I'm I'm not saying this isn't true for men as well, but I'm just for the moment talking about women because that's what I've been playing. I think women are trapped um, by self-image. They're trapped by the culture that 
tells them they've got to be this, they've got to be that, they mustn't be this, they mustn't. You know, there are so women's identities are shaped by such strong cultural forces, and those two are forms of entrapment. Um, I mean, you know, I've taken all my life to get free of some of that stuff myself. So I think that um, many women's roles are roles of women who are in some way held or stuck. Um, there, are re- there are very few women's roles where you feel I'm playing somebody really liberated, you know, really free to make her own free decisions. I, I, I can't think of any role I've played like that except possibly Rosalind in As You Like It. Well, is it true that you were reluctant to play Gertrude in Hamlet? And if yeah. so, why? I was very reluctant, yeah. Um, I never wanted to play Gertrude. I just think that Shakespeare's roles for women in their middle years are pretty rubbish. You know? <laughs> I mean, he's not really interested. Uh, and it may be that his company was, you know, all men and women's roles were played by boys and therefore it wasn't that interesting to write a complicated woman for some 12-year-old boy to play. And that child actor would not have contributed to the development of the role, unlike Shakespeare's older male actors who were, you know, we think, you know, developed and and um, added material to their roles and made them, personalised them. And that so very often you get a, a woman like Gertrude in Hamlet that on the page looks very functional. Hamlet needs a mother, you know, his father's been killed. He, he, he needs that mother role in the play, Shakespeare, to sort of tell that part of the narrative, but you never really see her alone. You only ever see her as Claudius's new wife and Hamlet's mother, um, which is true of many contemporary roles as well. And... Apart from the closet scene, which is actually not great for Gertrude either, you know, you have to make huge uh, changes of emotional um, placement, as it were. It's a really, really hard scene to play. So, no, I wasn't. But when Rob Ike asked me um, when he was doing Hamlet with uh, the very wonderful Andrew Scott, I still said no, and I said, no, Rob, come on, you know, let's do something more interesting than that together. And he said, well, I think she is interesting. And I said, I, I, you know, I, she's not. I've turned her down before. And, and he said, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, she doesn't speak. She's there, fundamentally significant to the whole story. But she has no space. No, 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 you never discover what her point of view is. You only ever hear the men's point of view, you know, the, Hamlet's dead father describes her as, you know, guilty. and that, But you never hear her point of view, and, and she doesn't have a place in the narrative. And he said, well, let's frame that. Let's make that part of the production. Let's, um, let's put those silences into the production. Let's put a frame around them and look at why. Well, when he said that, I said, oh, yeah, okay, because that would be really interesting. And if he was as good as his word. You know, we did. We did. And he gave me many, many moments that were non-textual. There was nothing said, but there were moments, quite a lot of moments with Andrew playing Hamlet, a lot of moments, you know, with Claudius, with Ophelia even. You know, why is there no relationship between these two women, Um, the only two significant women in the play? So um, he really... And and I ended up loving playing her. It was really rich. She goes on a huge journey. But it's a bit like those join-the-dot pictures, you know, in children's um, in, in colouring books. You, you, you've you only got a few dots <laughs> to join. So the lines between the dots are massively complicated lines. You know, you don't... If the dot represents text, then you've got a huge amount of subtext. But we did, and it was fascinating, and I loved it. And then, you know, working with very brilliant company, and Andrew in particular... It was fascinating. So we need more of that. <laughs> you know, we, meet, we need more directors who say, okay, this woman doesn't say a huge amount. 
on the page, but let's place her in this narrative with choices of our own, you know, 21st century. Let's look at why she doesn't speak or why nobody asks her her opinion or how she is trapped or why is she silent, you know. Would you be interested in playing more male Shakespeare roles like Glenda Jackson did at the Old Vic last year as King Lear? Well, you know, it's funny because... The first really significant play I saw was Richard II at Stratford, played by Ian Richardson, and um, he alternated with Richard Pascoe playing Bolingbroke. I saw that at 16 years old, and I went in as one person and was totally blown away and walked out changed forever, you know. And I saw that production six times that summer. I hitched up to Stratford, and I watched it again and again and again. That summer, I... We went on holiday and I sort of shut myself in my bedroom and learnt the whole of Richard II. And it was always Richard II that I wanted to play. And then, I, and then shortly after that, I saw King Lear in a production that came to my school, just five actors in jeans in the in the hall. And I wanted to play King Lear. You know, I had no interest in playing, you know, um, Cordelia or any of the women. They seemed to be really uninteresting. But the scale of those men's journeys and their experience and the amount of feeling and thought they express that's what I wanted to do and I look back now and I think what did a 15 year old girl have in common with King Lear why did I connect so ardently to that I thought well you know he feels powerless where he wants power and he he may be used to having power and he he reaches out for power but it's gone Um, he's very unsure emotionally of who loves him and who doesn't and needs it reiterating all the time. When that doesn't happen, he throws a a fit, a tantrum. He's unsure of his identity. He's outraged by what he sees and learns to be injustice in the world. He feels himself to be going crazy. And I thought, well, you know, that's quite symptomatic of your average teenager. You know, (laughs) all those things, you know, frustration, powerlessness, uh, identity crisis, um yeah need for freedom and and power but the withholding of that by the forces uh who could be giving it to you and are not i mean those are all quite teenage so i i i suppose it was the scale of those roles but um and i i, I always thought i'd like to be the first female king lear but actually um well uh, you won't be i'm afraid Catherine hunter, <laughs> Catherine hunter beat beat us all to that she was a wonderful uh, king king lear here many years ago at young vic and then now glenda so I, don't know, I, I mean, I, I don't feel so, so drawn towards that. I think what I want to do is tell women's experience. I don't think, I mean, it's, I love all this cross-gender stuff. It's really interesting and it's very right. It's very, um, it's very in the zeitgeist to be going gender fluid on casting. It's absolutely what we should be doing. As it is, you know, we should be really looking at what, what gender means in, in our culture and um, allowing children to, to define themselves in ways that are not so binary. I really do believe in that. But I, I want to give expression to women's experience, not just men's. And it is different. Well, that brings me to a, a quote that you gave The Guardian uh, last year, where you say, women have to work harder to get sympathy. Do you mean in theatre or in life? Oh, both, I think. I mean, not always. Um, but a, a director, woman, friend once said to me, um, being an actress is like being a woman twice, you know. And it was—it's brilliant, really, because if you're judged um, in life as a woman, sort of in by much, much, much tougher ways, I think, morally than than men are, then on stage characters are judged morally. Where it comes to their moral behaviour and actions, 
they're far more ferociously judged than than men are. You know, I mean, if a woman slashed and murdered like Macbeth does, I mean, look at you know, Lady Macbeth is considered a monster. Macbeth is a troubled, uh, sort of anti-hero hero, really. I mean, you you know, a woman who behaved like King Lear would not be a tragic heroine. She'd be a, a you know, a, what would they call her? Some sort of crazy hag mm. or one of those terrible. You know, I I, mm. I think that women are expected to behave in certain... There's a whole different moral code for judging women's mm. behaviour than judging men's. There's no question of that, I don't think. So, yes, it, it applies to characters too. I mean, I played Isabella in Measure for Measure, you know, who refuses to have sex with Angelo to free her brother's death sentence, which Angelo says he'll do if she'll sleep with him. And she refuses because, for her, that would be perjuring her soul forever. She's um, on the way to being a nun. She's a novice nun. Uh, she has been incredibly judged and, and sort of for that, both by literary and dramatic tradition, and she's considered frigid and hysterical and, you know. But why, you know, for her, she's perjuring her entire belief system to save a brother from what his actions have brought him to. She loves her brother. She doesn't want him to die. But her judgment about who she has sex with is... Now, if that was a man, I think she, you know, her actions would be considered heroic. Um... Whereas as a woman, uh, she was very, very... So when, when I played her, one of the things I wanted to do was, was, was to get her to be seen as somebody making really positive choices, you know, that, that her arguments come from a passion for life, not from a sort of terror of life and sex and sexuality. Um, so I've forgotten the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just about what you said to The Guardian about women having to work harder to, oh, yeah. to gain sympathy, but also yeah. linked to that another quote you gave where you say that women in theatre are not allowed to fail. Is that the same line of, line of argument, that women have to work doubly as hard? I think it's true for women directors. Yeah, I mean, there are many men directing who have had you know, successes, failures, mm. sometimes several failures, but they're still working away. Look in uh, Westminster as well, I suppose. Oh, God, yes, yes. I, I, yeah, I do think so. I think that women... You know, I know women directors whose careers have not survived having one or two flops, um, critical flops. Goodness knows the shows may have been great, but critically not successful. And um, so that's it, you know, whereas I think, I mean, there may be complex reasons for this. It may be partly to do with self-belief, you know, that some men do have a phenomenally robust relationship with their own self-confidence. <laughs> and I think women may fail on that, you know, they may... But they, but I think they there is a they, they are more fiercely judged. But that comes from a society which tells men, in particular, white middle class straight men, that don't worry about it. You are fine. You can you can sort of breathe through. When other groups within society don't have that, would yeah. you say? Yes, I mean I think you know one of the really wonderful things about working in this building at the Young Vic is that I think they have the most effective outreach policy in terms of reaching out to young women, um, to kids in, in in these two boroughs of Lambeth and. Southwark who have not perhaps ever been to a theatre before let alone seen a classic play or an interesting new play or um, and I love the fact that when you come into this building it's full of women and it's full of great men and it's full of um, it's very very multicultural and you see different kinds of you know faiths and belief systems and it is a reflection of the incredible sort of melting pot that London is and that's what theatre should be. It's really weird because you think, if you work in the arts on the face of it, you'd think we were working in a very progressive area of life, you know, where we were sort of cutting edge. And in fact, lots of lots of show business and lots of theatre is actually very conservative and conventional. And I look at other art forms like literature or painting or design or music and you think well, women are way further ahead. 
you know, think of these incredible, iconic women figures in, you know, pop music, in rock, in in um, coming into rap now, into all sorts of things. You look at literature, you look at, you know, Hilary Mantel, you look at Zadie Smith, you look at all those incredible women writers, you look at... We don't have that reflected in our industry, either for women writers or for women directors on film, television or in the theatre. It, it, we're still way behind. Julia, we could talk about this for hours, but I want to talk to you about another campaign, another issue which I know that you've been so active on, which is the refugee crisis which we find ourselves in. What prompted you as an individual, as Juliet, to say, actually, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to do my own small part in trying to make this better? What was it that made you decide to do something? Um, Well, I've been sort of interested and engaged to some extent with refugee um, issues for about 25 years because I did this play, Death and the Maiden, at the Royal Court, and I had to play a woman tortured and detained under Pinochet's um, sort of fascist regime in um, in Chile. And in order to play a tortured woman, I went to meet a lot of Chilean refugees who had been tortured and detained and had escaped and got here because they were given um, they were given a sanctuary here, uh, many of them. So once I got engaged and, and heard their stories, and they were all extraordinary human beings and also saw the work of Helen Bamber and the, and the medical foundation who was treating... Uh, uh, healing people, trying to... It was so uh, extraordinary a sort of aspect of human existence that I couldn't really let it go, so I sort of stayed in touch with that whole world for quite a while and, well, permanently, really, just fundraising and doing stuff like that. Then when the refugee crisis, as we know it now, really sort of burst onto our... um, into our headlines, as it were, about two or three years ago, um, well, you know, it just struck me that I thought... This is the huge event of our era. This huge migration of people. There are 60 million people, you know, then uh, uh, who are refugees all over the world. There are people in vast numbers, you know, dragging their belongings, their children, their elderly mums and dads, their, their, their lives on their backs, lost walking, walking, drowning, climbing mountains, being, um, you know all over the world, but particularly, and, and we have to respond to it. I mean, you can't live in your own era and not respond to the forces at work in that era. I don't think you can. And how can we not? When people say, why do you get involved with this stuff? I don't really understand the question because I think, well, how could you not? You know, look at it. How many more children drowning on a beach do you want to see before you think it's time we did something? How many more people starving and going demented in in refugee camps where there's no running water and no heat in the winter and no medical resources? How many more images? We've, we're drowning in images. What reason is there for saying, well, it's got nothing to do with me? It has everything to do with us. And, you know, we were there. We sold arms to Assad, you know, years ago. We, we, we've always, um, and even if we weren't, even if we didn't have a history of military or political involvement, which we very often have, it's just your human responsibility, really. And also I get very impatient with systems that don't work. Well, similarly to the kind of the, the, the poverty that we saw in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in the 1980s, 1990s, and people saying, oh, we'll, we'll get compassion fatigue. Uh, if you keep showing us these images, we will just become acclimatised to them and it w- won't have the resonance to, to make us act. Mm. Is there a risk similarly with the refugee crisis? There's totally a risk of that. Um, that's That happens. What also happens is that people get diverted. You know, when that 
picture of Elan Kurdi drowned on a beach, that little two-year-old, um, was on the front page of the Daily Mail and all those other newspapers, suddenly everybody sat up and took notice because that little image of a boy wearing jogging pants and trainers and a little T-shirt, just like their own two or three-year-olds, people just suddenly connected and thought, this this could be ours, you know, and therefore they responded. Suddenly there was a rush of engagement with the refugee crisis. But, you know, well, we know about, you know, Brexit has divided us, meant the, a, a lot of arguments by certain elements in the media have persuaded people that refugees and immigration is their problem. You know, despite the fact they've been living with under a government whose austerity measures have created huge deprivation all over this country, huge poverty, the the thus, you know, the best, the us and them, the, mm. the, the rich and the poor divide is, which started under Blair's government is is massive, as we know, and yet people still blame immigration for all the issues they feel they rightly um, are experiencing in relation to housing or education or schools or the NHS. So, I mean, immigration is a brilliant way for governments to to point the finger onto something which is very often uh, the very wrong direction. So we know that the, you know, the, the right-wing media do build up this sort of um, uh, phobia ab about immigration and then... People are just very, you know, they've got a lot on their plates, I suppose, with this Brexit fiasco and uh, and the endless sort of debates around that. And then, um, so I think one of the things that actors, writers, people in the creative industry can do is get those stories heard. Just go because we're storytellers. That's what I think. You know, people say, How, "What gives you the right to stand up?" I say, "Well, I think anybody can stand up first of all and talk about." Um, what they believe or what, what upsets them or moves them or makes them angry. Anybody can. It's a free country and freedom of speech. But as an actor, if we can get people to hear the stories and if we can even inhabit these stories so that people can hear what's happening to human beings, they can't go on reading statistics. You know, you can't. It doesn't mean anything to read how many people were killed last night when Assad, you know, bombed yet another Syrian town and you read, you know, 640 people, whatever it is, we can't take those figures in but if you see a child that's lost, lost its mother running around in the street weeping um, then people will respond and so it's up to us in a way to tell to try to tell the human story behind the news because that's the reality the human stories are the reality that's what's going on and it's only because you can't see it when Calais camp you know when the jungle was up and running people could actually go and see it and everybody who went was so shocked that they became, you know, motivated to do things. And um, were you prepared for what you saw at the refugee camp in Calais? No, no. I, I, the first visit there, that that I first went with a sort of carload of stuff. Uh, I'll never ever forget. Um, no, I was so shocked. Um, but now there are thousands of people back in Calais. They don't even have that. They don't even have those makeshift little flapping tents with the rain coming in and you know makeshift shelters. At least you could go and sit in a warmish cafe in, in that camp. Now people are living in the woods, in the mud, persecuted by the French riot police, pepper sprayed, having their sleeping bags burnt in front of them. I mean, it's just outrageous what is happening in Calais now. Um, it's no good to smash a camp to pieces. It's not, it's, it's no solution. You, you, you know, it's, it's just a... No, I, I uh, to go to that jungle was was to be immediately aware that we've just got to roll up. Everybody's got to roll up their sleeves and do something. And um, yeah, I did get very involved there. 
I didn't work for some months actually. I took some time off because I just wanted, there were a few projects that I wanted to pursue there. And also I met the most amazing people, both in the camp and, and volunteers. I mean, just phenomenal people coming to help or to work there or people who'd made their journeys themselves. I was, uh, I got very pulled in and, and the thought of acting, you know, didn't seem so appealing for a while because uh, there was a lot to be done. And do you think this this period that we're in now, you mentioned Brexit, we mentioned the refugee crisis, we haven't mentioned who is the president of the United States, but will this period in time be looked upon in 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they'll go, my God, why didn't they do more? How did that happen? That's what I say to people. I say, you know, well, first of all, I hope it will be looked back on as a period where, where the world went crazy, you know, where they went nuts, elected to the White House, a man who barely knows couldn't point to the map where where Kuwait is or I mean you know I mean the the level of ignorance um in that position of ultimate power in the White House uh, leaving aside corruption and all those other things that hopefully will emerge and be provable um I mean it's 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 sort of still unbelievable isn't it that that mm. could have happened and mm. but you know we know why we're beginning to know why it happened and and cyber interference cyber warfare the whole influence of these right-wing organizations and so on and the distorting of social media to 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 push your political point and and it's it's really really terrifying i hope we will look back at this period as as a as a particularly challenging and difficult and awful one because i hope we will have moved through it to something better mm. but i don't know as for as for what did you do in the war mm. a kind of daddy kind of stuff yeah i do very strongly feel that and i say to you know you will want, when you're older, when your kids or something say, what did you do during this refugee crisis when, you know, mm. when there were millions and millions and millions of people homeless and desperate and starving and brutalized and victims of smugglers and, and trafficking and children separated from parents and, and, and then this hideous cynicism generated by the media. What did you do then? And I would want to be able to stand up and say, I did what I could. And what if somebody listening to this has two young children and has two jobs and equally thinks that the refugee crisis is the most appalling humanitarian crisis but doesn't know what they can do? What, what, can, what can anybody do who can't take time off work? Oh, to... there's so many people in that position mm -hmm. who are just too busy. They, you know, they've got their work cut out just getting their families fed and getting to work and back. And um, I think there's always stuff you can do. Fundraising. Fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. There are brilliant charities and NGOs working on the ground, many of them British, I mean, amazing, and very run by young people, many of the most effective um, workers I saw sort of offering relief and aid incredibly efficiently and effectively were between the ages of, sort of 20 and 30, 35. Um, so that, I mean, if you can, in your, in your workplace, have a little fundraiser um, in your school, in your community, in your parent group at your lo kids' local primary school. Um, just £10. If you can raise £50, it's brilliant. You know, put it into Help Refugees. Um, you know, go to that website and donate it. You know, um, if you want to get involved, there are refugees welcome groups all over the country. Just Google it. Google Refugees Welcome and you'll find something in your area which is, mm -hmm. you know, if it's only taking a cooked meal to somebody once a week. Many of the churches are doing brilliant stuff for refugees. There's nobody in this country who doesn't live near some sort of shelter, some sort of drop-in place um, where people are being 
hopefully um, supported just minimally to, to survive. Um, but yeah, I think mainly, you know, there are such great organisations, but they are desperately strapped for cash. Cash is ever, ever harder to find. Um, you know, there was a rush two, two years ago to, to raise money for refugee charities, but that's much of that's dried up now uh, for reasons we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and there's, there's always something you can do. And this theatre is one of two theatres of sanctuary in the UK as well. So I, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know. No, so the Young Vic and the West Yorkshire Playhouse are both theatres of sanctuary. Oh, um, that's great. Rock on the West Yorkshire Playhouse. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. What do they What What do they offer? So, I, as far as I'm aware, refugees are welcome to come and use their facilities for whatever purpose, whatever cultural purpose, or see yeah. a show, or be in a choir, that kind of thing. And, and similarly here as well. That's so brilliant. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned young people there, which I want to uh, twist around and turn into the term uh, millennials. I'm sure you've come across uh, this term. Do you feel hopeful that all of this terrible, terrible stuff that we've spoken about will be picked up by millennials and hopefully something positive will, will come I do. From it? I do. Millennial, the millennial generation are my greatest source of hope and joy. Um, I've just met so many brilliant people in that age group in the last two years, particularly in the refugee sector. I mean, almost everybody I met in Calais was that generation and doing astonishing things, whether it was building houses with wood with their bare hands or running theatre companies or organising food distribution on a massive level. I mean, the three young women who started Help Refugees, which is now, you know, which is now the go-to charity for the Greek government, which is working with, um, in refugee camps all over Italy, all over Greece, in the Lebanon, in France, in Calais, Paris, here in helping um, the few refugees that have managed to get here to, um, to, to, you know, to create some sort of lives for themselves. I mean, phenomenal. Started by three young women who just rented a storage space and asked people to bring some clothes and sleeping bags. And it went from there and it just rocketed. And I'm, I'm in touch with them all the time and I help fundraise and things and I sometimes go on trips with them. I went to uh, Athens last year to look at refugee camps there and, and, and hostels for unaccompanied children, refugees. I mean, the efficiency, the effectiveness, and there's almost no overheads because they do it all on social media. There, there are no piles of paper or desks or, you know, people do it from their flats, from their front rooms. Um, their, their capacity to use social media to the greater good is phenomenal. They're all te- technologically incredibly confident and brilliant. Um, and I don't know, just amazingly compassionate and also very, I think, I think they're very clear about the era they've grown out of, you know, that their parents' generation has been through. They, we've lived through Thatcherism. We've lived through New Labour. We, we've lived through, you know, the death of all political hope if you're looking to a political system that's an alternative to capitalism at its most cynical. You know, a lot of us had to live with the death of that idea that we could um, live in some way which was more based on equality of opportunity and a fairer system. But this generation thought, OK, well, We'll just do it, you know. Don't trust, don't rely on old organisations or governments to do it. We need to pressurise governments. But let's just roll up our sleeves and get on with it. And they do, and they do it with amazing efficiency. Um, And commitment and ingenuity and imagination and tireless energy 
I mean, help refugees, what, one of the things they do is they go and they find grassroots organizations on the ground in other countries and they watch them for a while and they see whether they're efficient or not. And if they are, they'll fund them. It's just a simple, brilliant idea. So you're, you're cooking at the moment for the homeless in Athens, 50 meals a day. Could you cook 5,000 meals a day if we funded you and got you 20 more volunteers? Yeah, we could have a go. Right, okay. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and then they sort of, they make sure it works. They supervise it. They, they so that that's a sort of example of of things that are going on all over the place, and it's really inspiring. And one of the reasons I love getting involved is that you, it's how I stay sane. I mean, I don't know how people who look at the news and read mm-hmm. it and are not able to be active. I I don't know how you'd stay sane. Really, you just it helps you feel you're not completely powerless, and it just makes you you know it just take, takes you to to the some of the best of humanity well you mentioned politics there i mean and people like tony blair and and uh the the thatcher major governments before him but what about corbyn here and sanders in the us and Mélenchon in france Admittedly, these are all old white men but there seems to be an appetite for an alternative mm, mm. but equally all of those men that i've just named almost did it but didn't do it is that frustrating or is that hopeful? It's intensely frustrating. But then those, those, those men nearly did it while having the entire media lined up against them, firing at them. I mean, the, for, for those men and what they represent, the media is a firing squad. I mean, even liberal, supposedly left-wing liberal newspapers or, or you know, are cynical mm. about them. The Guardian. Yeah, was, was, you know, has always been down on Corbyn. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's... Uh, the centre has shifted to the... To the right and say what's now considered to be centrist, we would have considered 30 years ago to be quite far right. But because the centre's shifted, then you get people who are just, you know, generally fairly run of the mill, um, you know, supporters of notions of freedom of equality and of opportunity and uh, 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 gender equality and, and sexuality equality and racial equality and all those issues. They're considered to be sort of rabid, you know, Pinko, it's it's absurd, <laughs> but that's how they're painted. So if the, if those men can do that well, in uh, in the face of having absolutely no support from the media, pretty much across the board, and a lot of abuse and distortion from a great deal of the media, um, particularly the Murdoch media, then then you know what what could they have achieved if they hadn't been fighting that? And which is a measure of how much support they are getting from that very millennial generation that we've been talking about. And it's a thrill to me that that millennial generation can see um, that there is an alternative and that those people actually, whatever you think of Corbyn as a person that he has, he's my MP, he's been my MP for 25 years. He has stuck to those things that he believes in. He has not been compromised by um, by party politics or by power struggles. He has held true to what he believes in and he really does believe in it. And I think now this... Many of these millennials um, can tell the difference between somebody who is, uh, you know, who is uh, spinning mm. and somebody who's speaking from the center of a belief system that does have humanity and equality at its core and that matters to them. Juliet, let's return to you. Are you allowed to tell us what exciting projects you're cooking up right now while you sit on the Northern Line? Um, you're not sitting on the Northern Line right now, by the way. No, just I, to... I will be talking. <laughs> going back to my... Um, um, yeah, well, actually, um, quite soon I'm going to start re-rehearsals for Mary Stewart. Oh, excellent. Um, which we did at the Almeida. That was so brilliant, by the way. I really um, loved it. It was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, so we're doing the same thing that Leah Williams and I are playing both Mary and Elizabeth. 
and we toss a coin at the beginning of the show and whoever calls heads, if it is heads, plays Elizabeth. So we have this genuine um, mm. uh, thing of not knowing which way around we're going to play it. And uh, yeah, in Rob Ike's brilliant version, actually, he wrote the new version, which is very fast and brilliantly sort of pulls the politics out of it and draws the politics out of it and um, makes it feel like a new play. And uh, yeah, so we're doing that in the West End. It's a transfer opening in January. Fantastic. Can I come? Please. (laughs) I will do. Please, lots of people come. And yeah. Juliet, this has been a podcast of hope and activism, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for coming in this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.